Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to this daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them and those who followed were all shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was a big deal. This was not a backdoor entrance into Jerusalem. Oh, there were other times when Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the festival of lights. He kind of snuck in quietly. His apostles and and his family, they didn't even think he was going to show up. But he did. He just kind of snuck in. So that no one really knew he was there until he started to preach. And then people began to be aware. Is he here? He's in the city somewhere. Not this time. This time there is a grand parade that is mounted on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Where Bethphage and Bethany and other villages were located. And Jesus would ride that colt up over the top, down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem. And it was a big deal. When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem that day, it was reminiscent of King Solomon's coronation. Listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38. I'll just read it to you. It says, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Karatites and the Pelatites, they went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. January 20th, Inauguration Day. The Capitol Mall was flooded with estimates anywhere from 800,000 to 3 million people, depending on your party affiliation. (laughs) On this day, in Israel, when Jesus rode in on the colt, it wasn't 800,000 people, it was packed out for the Passover. In fact, Josephus tells us that when the Passover came... Upwards of 2 million Jews jammed into Jerusalem. And not Jerusalem the size it is today. No, Jerusalem back then, which was quite a bit smaller. In fact, if you visit the old city, if you visit Jerusalem, there's New Jerusalem, but then there's the the old city, they call it. That was the size of Jerusalem. If you go there, or if you've been there, imagine 2 million people in that tiny location, ready, preparing for this celebratory time of the Passover, reminiscent then of Moses. And the people of Israel being led safely out of Egypt when the Lord passed over them by the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. So there were a lot of people there. 
And on this occasion, Jesus decidedly coordinated a huge evangelistic crusade that shook the whole city. And I'm not over-exaggerating. Verse 10 said, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That word stirred in the Greek is seismic. Seismic, like an earthquake. And it goes on and says the crowds were saying, the word saying there means over and over and over. Continually saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus. And word was spreading like wildfire. As he came down in glory and honor, people putting their coats, palm branches on the ground in front of him. And he rode in on that amazing day. But to me, what is most amazing about this stirring, triumphal entry of Jesus Christ is that it is absolutely uncharacteristic of Jesus to do such a thing. He hadn't done this kind of thing before. This was not his typical M.O. This is not how Jesus rolled. In fact, it's the only time in his life and ministry that he personally orchestrated an event so grand that focused all the attention on himself. Jesus characteristically, and we've seen this looking back over the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus avoided such attention-getting moments. He often fled such moments. He didn't organize them, that's for sure. Oh, He didn't mind the crowds, and we often saw big crowds around him. But he was there to teach them, and to heal them, and encourage them. But the moment it became about him, he disappeared. Let me give you some examples of that. Remember in the Galilee when the crowds began to get excited after the feeding of the 5,000? John tells us in John 6.15 that Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take Him by force and make Him the King, He withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. Remember when the father with the demon-possessed son that we just read about recently, he's begging for healing. And Mark chapter 9, verse 25 said, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Now, had that been me, I would have waited for the crowd. We have enough people in here? Everybody watching? Check this out. Boom! Not Jesus. He was never about drawing that attention to himself. Even in the most glorious moment of his ministry to date, the transfiguration, how many people saw that? Three, and they didn't even get it. John chapter 8, verse 50, Jesus said, I do not seek my glory. Verse 54 of that same chapter, he said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Please hear that. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. Why? With all that background, and with the nature of Jesus being so humble, why would he orchestrate such a grand event? Why go about such behavior, such attention-grabbing behavior? Well, as we look at Jesus riding in on the colt of a donkey, there are several things I'd like us to mule over this morning. <laughs> and by the time we're done, key elements will be obvious to you. By the time we're done, key elements done for you. Sorry, I really shouldn't burrow bad puns like that. But, uh... Okay, enough horsing around. Seriously, let's move on. I want to point out several reasons why Jesus' unusually glorious entrance into Jerusalem was, was so uncharacteristic. Why would He do this? Number one, 
He did it for the precise fulfillment of prophecy. The precise fulfillment of prophecy. There are three Hebrew prophecies represented here. This specifically described the grand entrance of the long-awaited Messiah into Jerusalem. Matthew directly quotes two of them. It looks like just one, but it's actually a mixture. He, he ties two together in his quotation there in verse 5. And then there's a third prophecy, a partial fulfillment of that prophecy, partially fulfilled in Jesus' grand entrance on that day, partially it will be fulfilled again later. Let's look at these two real quickly. In the precise fulfillment of prophecy, number one, the prophecy of the cult. The prophecy of the cult. Back in verse 1, Matthew 21, when they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethphage, and there's Bethphage and there's Bethany, two different little villages, both on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So when they come to Bethphage, and at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt, or and a colt, with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Which prophet? Zechariah and Isaiah. I'll show you in just a moment. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. All four gospel writers tell us about the great triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You find it here in Matthew 21. You find it in Mark 11. You find it in Luke chapter 19 and in John chapter 12. The same story told from four different men, four different perspectives, all looking. And by the way, if you ever wonder, why aren't the Gospels exactly the same? Because you've got four guys who are looking at it from different angles, experiencing it differently. If, if we had four people this morning describe the worship and write it down, you would have four similar but different perspectives. And it's wonderful because we don't just get the writing through one man. We get four angles of Jesus from four different points of view. But obviously, because this story is in all four Gospels, it holds greater significance for us. However, looking at all four Gospels, Matthew is the only one who mentions the colt and the donkey. The other three, they don't mention that there's, that there's two animals. The colt, Mark chapter 11, verse 2, tells us the colt having never been ridden. So this is a young colt of a donkey that has never had anybody on its back. And donkeyologists will tell you. (laughs) It's hard to ride an unridden colt of a donkey. Very difficult. They need to be broken. This colt had never given anybody a ride. Jesus is the first. And he didn't have any problem. Why is that? Because the beast understood who the Creator was. And as Jesus rode that cult, I have a sense the cult knew exactly who was in charge, who had the authority there. Why a donkey and a cult? Because that's what the prophecy said. Because that's what Zechariah had foretold. Remember, Matthew's writing from that, from that Hebrew perspective. He is pointing to Jesus as the king in all fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And so he doesn't miss a thing. He recognized colt and donkey. Wait a minute. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. That's exactly what the prophet said. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Another reason for colt and donkey both coming along is the colt would probably be a little more passive if mother was there. Mom was riding alongside. So Jesus comes riding down on the colt, the donkey next to him, in precise fulfillment 
of Zechariah's prophecy. But Matthew also melds in another prophetic verse. It's Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. That verse, gang, it points to both Jesus' triumphant entry, which was a foreshadowing of his later return, when he will set up his millennial kingdom. And Isaiah writes this again, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is the first line that Matthew quotes, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. This is interesting to me. I was asking myself just the question, why, why would Matthew not just quote Zechariah chapter 9 precisely? Why would he tie in this, just this lead-in line of Isaiah chapter 62 verse 11? Why do that? I think it's because of what Isaiah goes on to say. He says, listen again, Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. What does that mean? The word recompense in the Hebrew in Isaiah 62 it's the, it's the word translated in the New American Standard Bible, recompense. It's paula, which is more often translated work. Work. Listen to it that way. Behold, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. His work is cut out for him. Jesus is riding the donkey down the hill, not to be crowned king, But to be hung on the cross, His work was still before Him. The primary reason why He would come. That task yet ahead. So the prophecy of the cult is is one that we see. The other prophecy that points to this directly is what we can call the prophecy of the cornerstone. Keep a finger there in Matthew 21 and turn over to the book of the Psalms. Right in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Again, keeping that finger in Matthew 21. You're going to need to look back at Matthew 21 and then look back at Psalm 118 again. So Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Two days. Two days are described in Psalm 118. This first day is the day of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. How do you know that? Read on. Verse 25, Psalm 118. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Some things to note right there. The people are crying out as Jesus entered Jerusalem. What did they cry out? Do you remember the word they used? What's the word that they used? Hosanna. Hosanna. It means save us. Oh, do save. The psalmist wrote, we beseech you. Oh, do save. What else did the people say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Straight out of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes... In the name of the Lord. And furthermore, in verse 26 of Psalm 118, it says, We have blessed you from the house of the Lord, which is right where Jesus came. The temple sits today on the temple, well, it doesn't, the temple mount, so the temple used to sit on the temple mount. Right there, directly across from the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus came from Bethany where He stayed the night before at, at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. Lazarus feeling much better those days. And He had stayed there with them. They got the donkey and the colt near Bethphage. Then they headed up over. And the Mount of Olives, gang, it's a large hill. It's not a mountain like we would think of Mount Rainier. It's, it's a really large hill. You could walk up to the top of it and walk down the other side. But it's probably two to three miles from the base of one all the way down to the Kidron Valley on the other side. But directly across from the Mount of Olives stands the Temple Mount, where the temple would have been standing. And so as Jesus rode down and came up, just as the psalmist said, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So this blessing, this praise that was being given to Jesus was coming from all around the house of the Lord, the Temple Mount, and the city was stirred up. It's all precisely what the prophetic psalmist described ahead of time. But wait, there's more. Look back to Psalm 118 one more time in verse 27. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It speaks of the crucifixion. The people would shout praise. Hosanna! Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And the psalmist writes the very next thing that happens. Bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Strap Jesus to the cross. Drill the nails into His hands. This was foreseen long before. By Friday morning, Jesus, the festival sacrifice, the Passover lamb, was bound to the ultimate altar of the cross. And what people saw as an entrance of of triumph, Jesus saw as the work of Calvary. While they were shouting, Hosanna, save us, He knew what that meant. He knew it meant His crucifixion. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember what we talked about last week. And listen to this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The thing that was more public then the triumphant entry of Jesus was the cross. And God displayed this shame publicly for the sake of washing our sins away. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, there would be no kingdom without a cross. No saving without the festival sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But Psalm 118 is not called the Psalm of Tragedy. It's called the Psalm of Triumph because it speaks of another day. That's, by the way, the title of that psalm. The Psalm of Triumph. And if you read the whole psalm, it is a triumphant, rejoicing, glorious psalm. But it speaks of another day. Hold that thought and we'll come back to it. The precise fulfillment of these prophecies by Jesus' ride up to Jerusalem shows us, reveals to us, this was no afterthought. We know that over 300 prophecies of the Jewish Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus Christ in His first coming. There are multiple prophecies about His second coming yet to be fulfilled. But over 300 Jesus fulfilled in His lifetime things He couldn't possibly have controlled if He had wanted to unless He was God. No other religious writing does that. Not the Muslim Koran. It doesn't speak prophecy and fulfill itself. Not the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism. Not the flowery Baha'i writings of Baha'u'llah. Not the Book of Mormon. 
the only spiritual writing, religious, quote-unquote, writing in the world that did such a thing as the Word of God, the Bible. The prophecy is spoken. The prophecy is fulfilled. Ironside said, every move the Lord Jesus Christ made as He went through this world, every move was in exact accord with the prophetic Word and therefore in exact obedience to His Father's will. Everything He did, you can look back and you can see how it was spoken of ahead of time. And Jesus said, Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Do you delight to do His will? I don't know if I could always answer yes to that. I'll tell you what, when I do His will, even when it's difficult, ultimately, yes, I delight. But often I rebel not to do His will. Jesus, when He came, delighted. Every opportunity of absolute, perfect obedience to the will of God, whatever it was, no matter how difficult, no matter how taxing, no matter how trying, even if there was not understanding, which we know with Jesus, He understood. But even when we don't understand, the best is always perfect obedience to His will. Well, Rick, I can't, I can't even attempt perfect obedience. I know that. But obedience to the will of God is about delight. So only the Bible lays out such prophetic claims and reveals them as fulfilled. Isaiah 45, 21, the Lord says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. So God did everything He needed to do to make it clear to us who He was, who Jesus was that we might have opportunity to follow Him. Well, something else is going on here in in this triumphal entry. Another motivation for Jesus to involve Himself in such a great parade. Second thing, the purposeful forcing of His enemies' hands. The purposeful forcing of His enemies' hands. Over in Matthew 26, in verse 3, it tells us that the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So their plan was to be surreptitious. Wait till after the Passover is done and then nab him. We don't want an uprising. We don't want the people all stirred up. We don't want them upset. Their self-declared intent, gang, was not to seize Jesus on Passover because they feared his, his popularity too much. But Jesus knew His crucifixion had to happen on Passover. Again, in the fulfillment of prophecy. And so His enemies needed a little push. I submit to you that the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was that push. It was the first thing that got them upset and started moving them down this road more quickly than they would have moved otherwise. Do you know, by the way, where the Passover lambs were raised and tended until needed for a sacrifice at the Jewish temple. It was in a little town about six miles from Jerusalem called Bethlehem. It's where they were born and raised to be sacrificial lambs. Interesting. John 1.29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.7 calls Jesus, he says, Christ our Passover. It had to happen on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He is the whole point. 
And Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, this was not an afterthought either. It was from the very beginning. Before creation, as God prepared to call out, let there be light, there was a forethought. Let there be light, but let Jesus Christ be the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus moved in this triumphal entry. As he came riding on that colt that day, his move forced one of two options for the people. There's only two things you could do with Jesus, coronation or crucifixion. There was no in-between. Coronation or crucifixion. And my friends, the choice is the same today. Coronation, make Him your King. Worship Him alone. Give Him all authority or crucifixion. Cut yourself off from the only one who can save. Well, Jesus knew what the Jewish leaders would choose. And the parade down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and into the Old City had a coercive effect on these rulers, just as Jesus intended. But why, you might ask, why would God choose to have Messiah ride in on a donkey's colt in the first place? Why not on a great white steed? Why not come riding down in in, in greater triumph and glory? That's what the Romans would have done. As a matter of fact, historically, when a Roman commander killed in battle at over 5,000 men, if he was responsible for the death of 5,000 of the enemy, they always followed this thing up. They would ride a white horse in glorious procession into the conquered city. You know what they called it in Latin? Triumphus. Triumphus, which means a triumphal procession. But how different, how different was Jesus' triumphal entry versus that of a Roman captain who had killed in his glory? first day of the church, 3,000 were saved. The the book of Acts tells us just after that, 5,000 more were saved. And then 10,000 were saved. And across time, how many countless lives have been saved? And it was by salvation that Jesus came, for salvation, that He came in His triumphus, His triumphal procession. What do you think the soldiers of Rome, garrisoned there in Jerusalem, what do you think they thought of Jesus riding down the hill on that colt with the donkey beside Him? As the Jewish people, those ridiculous Jewish people, the Romans just couldn't get these guys. What is their problem? Their nationalism is out of this world. They just won't submit. What is the deal? We've conquered hundreds of other nations and they all submit to us, not the Jews. And now here they all are throwing palm branches down and then their coats and they've got this guy on a donkey. And, and I, I honestly, Roman guards standing there on the Temple Mount that day or nearby. You see what's happening here? This is ridiculous. No doubt they were hee-hawing at the dusty Savior who was coming down the mountain. It would not have made sense. Number three in our listing. Why would Jesus do this? Because it was the perfect format for Jesus' humility. For His humility. For though it was a grand and glorious entrance that did stir the entire city of Jerusalem, it was a very humble way to come down the mountain. Jesus maintains his characteristically humble demeanor. Matthew eleven twenty nine. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, in his presentation of himself as he walked the face of the earth, was always humble, always approachable. He still is. He still is an approachable Lord. One to whom we can come. Not one who's riding on that great white steed and, and we're all falling down. And the worship was a joyful worship as people walked along beside Him, you know, almost at eye level with Him. 
Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for all the adoration and praise and worship that was rightfully his, Jesus still preferred a humble entrance, a quiet entrance. Just like his birth, visited by shepherds with no gifts and wise men with gold, we see in this triumphus, in this triumphal entry of Jesus, an amazing blend of the humility that characterized him and the glory that was his. But there's another reason Jesus rode in on a donkey's colt. Number four, the peaceful future of his rule. The peaceful future of his rule. We read about Solomon's coronation. Do you remember now what Solomon was writing when he came into his kingdom and was coronated? The Bible tells us King David's mule. Even Solomon, in the glory days of Israel, on his coronation day, did not ride a white charger into Jerusalem. But he rode his father's mule. Why? Because it signified days of peace and comfort. The kings, when they were at peace didn't need to be on a charger and ride fast. They could ride slowly on a mule through the town, through the city. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And speaking of days to come in that millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign in perfect peace and prosperity, Isaiah 66, verse 12 Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip and bounced on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. But those were not days of peace when Jesus rode the donkey, rode the colt into Jerusalem. The hand of Rome was heavy, The tension so thick you could cut it with a sword. But Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem spoke of a day that was coming. A day of perfect peace. It's a wonderful story. Encouraging, exciting. It draws us to Jesus as so many of the stories about Him do. But but just to be there. And I can imagine being in the crowd that day. I mean, I can see it with my eyes and coming down that hill and throngs of people and just the enthusiasm and the excitement that was felt there in Jerusalem. Hope For the first time, hope was among the hearts of some of the Jewish people at least. The Jewish rulers, not so much, but the the people. Might we have someone to release us from the bondage of Rome? Hope was there. But there's something here, as I've been thinking about this story through the week, something that is even bigger. An application to you and to me that we must understand if we are to follow after Jesus. Number five, if you've been taking notes, the processional formation of godly authority. Let me say that again. The processional formation of godly authority. What do you mean? Simply this. Humility precedes authority. True humility, true authority, is grown by and nurtured in humility. Before there was a crown, there was a cross. But gang, before there was a cross, there was a cult. Because true godly authority, it proceeds out from humility. Sons and brothers, listen up. 
wherever you are, whether you're at work, at home, in our church, socializing in the community, whatever you're doing, your authority is absolutely bogus if it sidesteps humility. It just doesn't work. You may wonder, why do they laugh behind your back at work when you're just trying to do your job? Maybe the answer is there's not enough humility to give credence to your authority. Jesus shows us humility precedes authority. And a man in authority without humility is a donkey. Translate that in the King James and you'll get probably a little closer to what I'm intending to say. Daughters and sisters, listen to this. There is a great need for godly women in the home, in the workplace, yes, in the church, and in the community. But the same thing applies. It must proceed from humility because a woman in authority without humility is a nag. Did he just say that? I can't believe he would say that. Well, I didn't say it about any of you. We want authority. We all do. Oh, I don't want authority, Rick. Yes, you do. Trust me. If you're a parent, you want authority. Because without it, the kids will run wild. You need to have authority in the home. So how how, how do you manage that? Humility first. Humility first. Moms and dads, your, your parenting is not stronger by standing up and never being wrong. When you're wrong, you let your kids know, I was wrong. You show them what it means to be humble. It's not always about being right. Humility precedes authority. Husbands, wives, what we talked about last week, it wouldn't be an issue if we all grew out of humility and into authority. As opposed to trying to rule over those we are in relationship with. On their way up to Jerusalem, Jesus confronted and taught His apostles this very lesson. Back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, He had just said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus taught them this, then He showed them this. The triumphal entry. Peter, James, John, the other guys could look at Jesus and go, He's so humble. And yet He speaks with such authority. He always knows what He's doing. He always has the right answer, even when it's hard to hear. There's just something, but He's so humble. That's the point. Jesus would say that a few days later on that Thursday night. He would say, you know, while you guys are arguing over who's greatest, still arguing over that, let me show you again. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he washed their feet. And he said, you know, guys, I've just showed you something here. I want you to do what I just did. And that still wasn't enough. They still didn't get it. And so he went to Calvary. True humility always precedes authority. And so Paul writes in Philippians 2.9, For this reason God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. For what reason? His humility. Because He emptied Himself. Because He was willing to set aside the glory of heaven 
for the dust of humanity. And in so doing, he achieved and and attained a righteous authority. He had the authority before. But in your eyes and my eyes now, we look at Jesus and say, wow. When people rebel against God, I don't think they realize the humility of Jesus because when we see how humble He was, we look at Him and can say, He has every right to be my Lord. He earned it. Not that He had to, but He did. He earned the right to be my God. In a way no one else has. No one's treated me that way. No one has been so abjectly humble that I might be saved and drawn in Gang, this is not the only time, by the way, that Jesus rides to the Mount of Olives. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 39. It tells us, I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes the Psalm of Triumph, Psalm 118. Jesus says what the people had just said the day before. As they shouted out, shouted out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next day, Jesus says, From now on, you will not see me again until you say that. Lord, didn't they just say that yesterday? I'm not talking about yesterday, Jesus would say. I'm talking about a day that is still to come. A day when the world will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is quoting this as future event. He rode the donkey's colt up and over the, the, the slope of the Mount of Olives, coming into Jerusalem from the east. And you Bible students may recall, when he comes again, he comes from the east. And the Bible tells us, to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem and on the east. But that day there won't be a seismic occurrence among the people. There will be a literal earthquake on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah writes, The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so half the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half will move toward the south. When Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives again, massive topographical and geographical changes will take place. Talk about a seismic shift. It will be unlike anything that's happened, and He won't be riding a colt. On that day, Jesus will be doing exactly, exactly what the Romans would do when they conquered. Revelation 19. We've read this before, but turn there quickly. I want you to see this with your own eyes and hear it again. Revelation 19, verse 11. John is writing of this glorious event, the glorious return of Jesus. Talk about a triumphus. This is it. I saw heaven open, verse 11. And behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head has many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Do you remember what was written above him at the crucifixion? It was a name that everybody could know. Written in three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In his second coming, he he has a name written on him. No one's going to know it. Just Jesus will know it. He is clothed, verse 13, with a robe dipped in blood and His name is called the Word of God. And on that, at the end of that week, gang, when our Passover lamb was scourged for our healing, His robe was dipped in blood, His own blood, as it poured out of His back, out of His forehead, down onto His shoulders. 
When He comes again, that robe dipped in blood is not His blood. It is the blood of those who would set themselves against Jesus. Look at verse 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. And He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you remember in the garden what happened when Peter decided at the last minute he was going to try and have some show of bravado and he grabs a sword and hacks off the the right ear of the high priest's servant doing all kinds of damage. (laughs) Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on the man, heals him instantly and looks at Peter and says, Put away your sword. Put away your sword. When he comes again, his word will be a sword. And it will slay, again, those who are in rebellion to Jesus. Who don't want to serve Him as Lord. Who have chosen against Him. But I skipped a verse, didn't I? Look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. I believe, and I won't go into it today, I have reason to believe this, and I can tell you why later if you have a question. I believe that's talking about us. You and me, riding with Him, returning with Him. I'll give you this much. Partially it's because if you look up above at how the the bride is adorned for the marriage feast, look at what the bride is wearing, look at what the armies are wearing, same thing. There are more reasons for that, again, I won't go into. I just want to I point this verse out for this reason. If you want to follow Jesus on a white stallion, you first have to follow Him on the donkey's colt. If you want to ride with Him in glory, first you've got to ride with Him in humility. This is the call that is placed on us as followers of Jesus. Humility before authority. Philippians 2.5 <coughs> Paul said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray You make us humble. And I pray knowing what this means, Lord, well, probably not fully knowing what this means, but asking You to play this out in my life. Father, where we are arrogant and full of ourselves, I pray that You would knock us off of those places. And Father, do what You must do to bring us along the path of humility, walking humbly behind Jesus. Have Your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.